Good morning, Calvary. It is great to have you watching us this morning. Uh, those songs were simply uplifting, and that is exactly what worship should be. It should uplift our soul so that we are excited about hearing from God, and that's where we are right now. We're about ready to look at God's Word and see exactly what He has in store for us today, tomorrow, and the rest of this week. And right now we're looking at, in this series, uh, how to take lemons and make lemonade. We're looking at how to respond to life during moments that are a bit sour and a bit painful, turning them into something productive and something joyous. Not that it removes all the bitterness and the pain, but we respond to it in a way that pleases God and not creates bitterness, anger, frustration, angst, or even wanting to simply give up. And we've been looking so far that God has been using these hardships in our lives, whatever that might be. It could be what we're going through now together collectively as God's people and as a nation and as a world, or it could be something very unique to you, what you're going through in a relationship or work or medical problems. We go through those things in part so that God can work on our character, so that he can refine our character, so that we can become more patient, so that we can become more loving and sympathetic, so that we can become a people of hope in the midst of something hard and difficult. And we also saw, especially last week, that God is forever and ever and ever our good shepherd. And there comes with that God as our shepherd, Christ as our shepherd, there comes with that this tremendous, not just protection, but peace. And it's a peace that the world doesn't understand. It's a peace that the world thinks we're denying reality. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. And it guards our hearts and minds. And it allows us to go through a real hard, difficult time and not lose hope. Because the one who walks through it with us is the God of hope. And as we sang this morning, He is a good, good Father to us. I'd like to start this morning, this particular message, with a quote. I don't know who said this. Uh, I've always remembered it. I may be remembering it a little bit wrong, but it's perfect for this morning. It's the quote that says, Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can. Hate and bitterness cannot remove itself. Only forgiveness can. So when there is darkness in a person's life, whatever that dark moment may be, those dark providences that we face, more darkness can't drive it out. Only light can. And more specifically, if there is bitterness and hate in your heart, what drives that out is forgiveness. And we're going to be looking at a story of forgiveness like very few others in all of history. We're looking at the life of Joseph, the son of Jacob and Rachel in the Old Testament. The story takes up about a third of the Old Testament, a third of the book of Genesis. So it's a very important story in Genesis. 
And it's a hard story to read. And there are many times when I think of the challenges that I face, whether it be the pains of what we're going through here, the inconveniences of it, or even more personally, a struggle that I'm having with an individual. I look at the life of Joseph and I realize a few things. One of the things I realize is that I really don't have it all that bad. Yes, what I'm going through is painful and it is frustrating and it feels like the weight of the world is on my shoulders, but compared to what this saint went through, I have very little to complain about. And in the midst of that, like Daniel, Joseph is a man of God who yearns to be near to God, who understands the importance of being holy, who understands the importance of being in a foreign land and still keeping the faith. Joseph is a man of God who doesn't allow the circumstances that he is in to turn his back on God. He confronts his problems with God. He doesn't try to solve them without God. He doesn't try to go it alone and tough it out. He depends on God every step of the way. Now, the story of Joseph happens in uh, Genesis chapter 36 all the way through the end of the chapter. And in chapter 37, we have a scenario that radically changes Joseph's life. Now, to understand this radical change, we have to understand how precious Joseph is to his parents, Jacob and Rachel. Jacob had waited 14 years serving Lot day in and day out in order to have the right and privilege to marry Rachel. And once they get married, Rachel discovers that she is barren, that she's not able to have children. And she goes through a lot of turmoil herself, and her story is amazing. She has this frustration, and she lets it out and lets God, lets God know, I'm frustrated here. It's better off if I never was than to have to deal with this shame. God turns her around, and she has a child, Joseph. And Jacob is elated. He is super excited. The love of his life now has had a child, and it's a boy, and he names him Joseph. And he, I think unfairly in the eyes of his brothers, definitely seems like the favorite child. The favorite child. He spends a lot of time with dad. Doesn't have to go out and tend the fields or take care of the flocks or go hunting or gathering. He likes staying around the house. And uh, that's exactly what he does. And his brothers take notice that Joseph is privileged. That he's loved more than the other kids. To exasperate that, Jacob gives Joseph, father gives his son, this ornate, expensive, highly decorative, colored jacket to wear, a robe. Robes would have been very common, but they're hunters, gatherers, they're shepherds, they're out in the fields, they are out on the mountainsides. A beautiful, colorful, ornate robe is not what they need. 
Not what they want. They want something rugged that will take the mud and the dirt and the terrain. But Joseph gets this pristine, beautiful coat of many colors to set him apart even more from his brothers. And then Joseph, to make matters worse, probably for himself, not communicating in the best way, tells his brothers, hey guys, I had a dream last night, and in the dream, basically, you bow down to me. Oh, Joseph, you're not the firstborn. You're not going to inherit the father's fortunes. They're not going to bow down to you. There's no kings here. There's no princes here. So I can imagine the frustration on part of his brothers. Highly frustrated. That here is this guy already who is a mama's and daddy's boy, who doesn't have to do all the work, but reaps all the benefits, telling us now that we're going to bow down to him as king and serve him. Ah. So the rest of the boys, the rest of the siblings, all go out to a field to take care of the sheep and the flocks, the cattle, the goats, all those things. And eventually Joseph joins them. And that's where we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 38, uh, excuse me, Genesis chapter 37, starting in verse um, 19, Genesis 37. I'll give you a second to turn there. So Joseph is making his way out to the field. And verse 19 comes into play. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. So the the siblings see Joseph coming from afar, and their response is, here comes that dreamer. Now I think they're using gentle language at this time. Dreamer meaning this is the guy who thinks we're going to bow down and serve him one day as king, as emperor. Verse 20. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Joseph is still a little distant, and yet all the brothers had that same thought. Why don't we just kill him? Get rid of him now. This guy has been a thorn in our flesh, a pain to us for a long time. Somehow he's going to weasel us out of our inheritance, and somehow he's going to be in charge of the family, and we're going to have to serve him. No, let's kill him. That that was our first response. They probably had been brooding for days and days about this dream. And for years it has been festering inside of them how special Joseph is, how privileged Joseph is, how he gets the new clothes, how he gets everything, how mom and dad serve him. And now he wants us to serve him? No, let's kill him. They could have talked through the problem. Probably should have got counseling, seen someone about their anger issues. But no, that wasn't available. So the next best thing, let's just act on our instinct and our hate and kill them. Throw them away, tell them, Dad, an animal got them. Which would have happened. Common. They're in the wilderness. The animals are running freely. No zoos then. No containment. No fences. Just open wilderness. 
So that's the scenario as Joseph starts walking up to his brothers. And I imagine Joseph has none of this in his mind. He's thinking, oh, I'm here to cheer up the troops. Tell them they're going to do a good job. Hey, great job, guys. Anything I can report back to mom and dad? You can imagine just some of this tension of relationships that are occurring. And maybe you have a tense relationship in your own life, spoken or unspoken. Maybe it's only on your side, or maybe it's both sides. When Reuben, verse 21, heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Reuben was an older guy. He kind of was real seasoned. He wasn't, you know, he was half related to Joseph. He was his half-stepbrother, his half-brother, and really didn't want to see him die. And so he said, well, let's not take his life. Verse 22, don't shed any blood. Just throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben, Reuben said this to rescue him from them and then take him back to his father. So we see a little bit of insight into what Reuben's thinking was. I don't want his blood on my hands. Okay? Killing him is an extreme solution, and it probably isn't going to really solve anything. It's just going to make us murderers. So let's just put him here. We'll figure out what to do with him later. And in time, I'll just bring him back to Dad. No one has to be the wiser. And our emotions and the frustration that we're feeling will pass in time. So that's probably what's going through his mind. And so in verse 23, when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, a beautiful sign of, hey, we're getting rid of your special privilege before Dad, and now you're like one of us. You're just in your filthy rags. So he took the robe, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. The cistern was just a, a big pit in the ground, usually dug in bedrock that would collect both rainwater and well water. But it was obviously dry, just a big pit in, in the ground. No way to get out of it. The walls were too tall, too steep, too um, smooth. No way to get out of there. But they throw him in here, great temporary prison cell they were thinking. And so verse 25, as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilgad. Their camels were loaded with spice, balm, myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. They're traders in a caravan. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? So I think that that rash moment of let's kill him, let's kill him, let's kill him kind of has calmed down a little bit. Reuben intervened, put Joseph in the cistern, temporary prison, and uh, Judah gets up and goes, you know what, I think what we can do is um, save ourselves from the guilt of murder. Here's a solution. So come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood, and his brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Well, Reuben saw that the cistern was empty when he returned, and Joseph was not there, tore his clothes, and he went back to his brothers and said, the boy is in here, where can I turn now? The end of that story is that they devise another lie. 
They take his coat, spill animal blood on it, take it back to his dad and say, Dad, hey, you know what? We came across this on our way and our wandering, and I think it's the coat you gave Joseph, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, right? Well, there's blood on it. I think maybe he got attacked. And maybe the animals just carried him off, but all we found was this robe. And it's yours, isn't it? It's his. And they break the news to their dad, knowing full well they sold him into slavery, into Egypt, but they got away with it for the moment. They covered up their sin with a lie. Well, Joseph goes through some things there in Egypt. And in chapter 39, Joseph has kind of risen in rank. He has been faithful, just like Daniel was. He kept rising in responsibilities and respect because of his courage as a believer and his conviction of staying true to God, not compromising with the foreign gods, not compromising in any capacity. He is a godly man, and God blesses him for that. And we see in chapter 39, just the first uh, two verses there, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. So he is a slave. He just happens to be sold, however that was done in Egypt, to the captain of the guard, an incredibly important position. You were the guy who was in charge of everyone who was protecting the Pharaoh. Huge responsibility. It'd be sort of like whoever's in charge of the Secret Service today. That person buys Joseph. So Joseph is already being set up as a servant, a slave, to one of the most powerful men in Egypt, who has an audience with the Pharaoh, who has connections with the Pharaoh, who knows the Pharaoh's ins and outs perfectly. He's in a perfect spot. And Joseph is brought in to serve as a slave in Potiphar's house. Verse 2 tells us about God's blessing. How can any of this be a blessing? God can turn every moment you're in. God can turn every bitter situation you're in. He can turn every sour situation you're in to his good. And we receive the benefit of that. Verse 2 of chapter 39. The Lord was with Joseph so that he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. And when his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in the eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted him to everything he owned. Potiphar recognized, yeah, he's a slave. I own him. But every time I give him something to do, there's incredible success. It doesn't matter what I tell him to do, it is done incredibly well, above my expectations, and every time I get a more, give him more to do, it gets done even better. And Potiphar recognizes, somehow he recognizes, that the reason why Joseph is successful is not because Joseph is the smartest of all guys, the wisest of everyone. It's not because Joseph is the strongest or shrewdest. 
It's because the Lord is with them. Now there's no indication that Potiphar knows the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of promise. He, there's nothing to indicate that Potiphar knows about the promise of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice for sins. He's an Egyptian. He's pagan. He worships Pharaoh as God. But he recognizes there's something different about this guy. He's not like my other slaves who are always looking for an angle, always looking to protect themselves, always fearful. There's something about this guy. And so living in his household, I imagine Joseph had ample opportunity during this short period, which is only like four or five verses, but probably several months, if not even more than a year, of faithful service, Joseph had to have opportunities to say, hey, I'm doing this unto the Lord. I'm serving the Lord. And just like Daniel, he probably had prayer times and times dedicated to being drawn near to God, maybe even moments of those popcorn prayers like, I don't know how to do this, God, but help me. I need to learn the language. I need to learn the culture. Help. And so all through this, Potiphar sees Joseph and begins to realize there is someone behind the scenes who is immensely powerful in Joseph's life. And Potiphar begins to trust that person and begins to then trust Joseph to the point that he puts him in charge of everything. Everything. And Potiphar does say later on in the chapter that you have everything except don't go near my wife. Don't go near my wife. Well, eventually... Potiphar's wife also recognizes something in Joseph. Not godliness, but notices him physically and says, now that's a guy I want to be with intimately. Arranges it so he is alone with her in her bedchambers, her bedroom, and tells him, let's sleep together. Joseph said, no. How can I do this thing against my God? How can I sin in this way? How can I violate Potiphar's trust? He's given me everything but you. And you're reserved for him. I have no part in that relationship. I don't want to. She gets upset. Joseph does the right thing and hightails it out of there, runs out of there, doesn't want any part of it. Runs so quickly that Potiphar's wife grabs part of his clothing and rips it from him, and then turns to Potiphar and says, he tried to rape me. Potiphar, rightly, is angry at Joseph. Is he going to believe his wife or a slave? His wife holds an incredible sway over him, no doubt. So even though Potiphar knows Joseph is a man of integrity and trust and has proven himself, maybe Joseph slipped and he's got to be punished. And we pick that up in verse 19 of chapter 39. Actually, verse six, we'll just start in verse 16. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. 
Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave that you brought up to make me uh, came up to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. Then his master heard the story his wife told him, saying, This is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger, righteous anger, if this slave tried to have his way with his wife. So Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, a place where the king's prisoners were confined. He spent years there in that prison, a prison designed for the king's special prisoners. I don't think this meant that they got special treatment. I think it meant that they were specially harassed. And it was especially painful, uncomfortable time. He was there years. And all through this, Joseph did not sin. He was like Job. He patiently bore that situation. Didn't mean the situation was comfortable. He didn't deny the situation. He just looked at the situation, and when opportunity gave rise, he talked about God and shared the interpretation of dreams that people were having, especially people that were close to the king, Pharaoh. And come to find out, God blessed him during that time. God didn't save him from that bitterness. God didn't all of a sudden bring up another witness and say, no, Potiphar, your wife is lying. I'm witness to it. And Joseph could have pleaded all he wants, but God had a design in mind. You need to be in prison. You need to meet these people under an unbearable situation because I'm going to make something good out of it. Joseph didn't know that going in. All he saw is I was falsely accused of something. I'm being punished for something I didn't do. It's unfair. But he didn't shout and become bitter against Potiphar or the system. He knew God was with him. He knew God would bring him through this. He didn't know the when or the how, <coughs> but he knew the God that owns the when and the wow, how. And so he's there for a while. And eventually, blessing falls upon Joseph once again. In chapter 41, we read in verse 1, then two full years had passed, Pharaoh had a dream, and he was standing by the Nile. So Pharaoh has a dream, can't figure it out, about seven lean cows, seven uh, healthy cows, and, and so forth, and can't figure out what any of this means. And in comes Joseph, and in verse 41 it says, So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. Joseph used to be in charge of Pharaoh's household, in Potiphar's household. Now he's in charge of the whole of Egypt because Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dream rightly, that there would be seven years of great harvest. But after those seven years, there'd be seven years of famine. How do we prepare for it? When Pharaoh had that answer, he put Joseph in charge of it of all of Egypt. Second in command 
only to Pharaoh himself. There were two people in all of Egypt that had power like this. Pharaoh and now Joseph. A Hebrew slave. He was even in charge of Potiphar and all the guards. And so Joseph then spent the next seven years preparing for the seven years of famine. So all of those healthy harvests, he put some aside, put some aside, put some aside, organized it. I can't imagine the effort that was put in just to building the buildings that were necessary to house all the extra food, all the extra wine, all the extra grain, all the extra livestock. But Joseph did it, and he did it wonderfully. So that when the famine came, Egypt was okay. Egypt had prepared for the disaster. Now the disaster was upon them, and people from all over the region were coming into Egypt saying, I need help, 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 I need help. And slowly, Egypt began to help all of those foreigners who came in looking for food. Not because they were overly generous people, but because they had such surplus because Joseph had the dream, interpreted it, Pharaoh put him in charge, and Joseph ran with it. And God blessed his effort. He succeeded. Now I imagine at that moment, as the famine started and hardships started to happen all throughout the known world, Joseph might have been able to sit back and go, I kind of know why all this was happening. I kind of know why all of this occurred. I think it was so that God would put me in a place here to help. Because they would have been unprepared. Devastation would have hit, and hit not only Egypt, but the rest of the land. Now, in the rest of the story, though, eventually the famine is so bad that Jacob, Joseph's father, sends his brothers to Egypt, bartering and begging for food. Joseph recognizes them. And through a couple ploys and moments, succeeds in bringing all 11 brothers back to him, including his youngest brother, Benjamin. It would have been so easy for Joseph to have looked at his brothers when he saw them in line looking for food and said, no, get him out of here. He could have sold him into slavery. He had the power and ability to do that. But he didn't. Instead, this is what happens in chapter 45, starting in verse 1. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence! So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. So they're in this hall eating, and the emotion of the moment so overwhelms Joseph that he sends everybody out of the room except his brothers. In verse 2, And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. 
Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. He's probably sitting up on some kind of royal-looking throne, attended by all these guards, garbed in incredible garments of luxury and wealth and power. And then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one who you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me there because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land and for the next five years there will be no plowing or reaping. But God has sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. Things had fallen full circle. And Joseph's dreams where his brothers would bow down had happened. But it didn't happen because he was exerting his kingly power over them or snuck in and got their birthright from them. It was because God said, I need to save my people from a famine. And in order to do that, I'm going to put my trusted servant Joseph through a real painful time in his life. He's going to be thrown into prison, sold into slavery, forgotten as dead by his father and rest of the family. But he's going to raise up. He's going to be there when the people of promise need him the most. Joseph could have been bitter and angry and hateful and taken it out on his brothers. But he recognized that God is a God of love and compassion and mercy and tenderness and a God of forgiveness. And any bitterness, any hate that still was in Joseph's heart towards his brother's actions, which were sinful actions, he had forgiven a long time ago and realized that this is what God wanted of him. To protect the known world from a famine and to restore his brothers as brothers. And so he forgave them. They couldn't believe it. They were shocked. They fell down at his mercies and thanked him. As a take-home for us, this is 100% full of application. Full of application. And I know it might be super hard to forgive someone like Joseph did. Joseph had every right to turn his back and leave him alone. He had every right to want vengeance and payback. Humanly speaking, had every right. But even though his brothers intended it for evil, God intended this entire moment of lemon events for Joseph's good and for the good of all of Egypt and for the good of all of his family. And so he was filled with forgiveness. Now I know that there's people that hurt you. There may be people that are hurting you right now. They may know it. They may not know it. But the hurt is real. I know your hurt is real. I have felt that kind of hurt. I have been betrayed like that. I have been lied about. How do you treat those people that have done that? How do you treat those people that have gossiped against you? 
who have turned people against you, who have left you for dead, who ridicule you, abuse you, violate you, take advantage of you. Well, you can forgive them. That's within your power. That's within your right. That's within your ability to forgive them. How many chances should you give a person? How many times should they hurt you before you say, I give up on you? You know, Jesus' disciples asked him a very similar question when they asked him, how many times should I forgive my brother? Maybe seven times? And Jesus says, no. Seventy times seven. Which was basically Jesus' way of answering, it's a big number. Don't worry about it. The number is so big, you'll never exhaust the number. So how many times are you going to forgive the person that hurts you? Are you going to become bitter and angry? Even if it's justified. Even if they are completely in the wrong. You are the agent of mercy at that moment. You are the agent of displaying love when someone doesn't deserve it. Forgiveness when they don't deserve it. Reconciliation when they don't deserve it. I know right now in your heart and your mind, you're thinking of someone. You're thinking of someone that maybe no one else is thinking of. That person's hurt me. Forgive them. Forgive them. Show mercy on them. Forgive them. Be the mature person that God has designed you to be that has brought you through those bitter, sour, painful moments and shown love. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, Paul summarizes it like this. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. Why, Paul? Why should I be loving? Why should I be kind? Why should I be compassionate? Why should I forgive? Why? Why should I act like Joseph when I feel like pounding that person into submission and making them pay? Why? Just as in Christ, God forgave you. If you ever ask the question, why? Why should I act like Joseph? Why should I forgive? Why should I give them food? Why should I show them compassion and mercy? All you have to do, if that question ever pops up in your mind, is think of this. Has God shown you mercy? Has He shown you kindness? Has He shown you forgiveness? Yes, He has. Amen. Yes, He has. And yes, we should. We should be loving, kind, forgiving to those who have hurt you the most. If God can forgive you, you can forgive them. It is your choice 
to drive out the hate and bitterness through forgiveness or to live with it. But if you choose to live with that hate and bitterness and unforgiving heart, I guarantee you, your life will be marked by anger. You will be seen and known as someone who has a short temper. You will be known as someone who's not trustworthy. You'll be known as someone who has a grudge or a chip on their shoulder. You won't be known as a Joseph. This leads perfectly into communion. So in a minute, uh, I'm going to come back after this song, and we'll take communion together after the song, so please go get what you need to get, and come back in just a couple minutes, and we'll take communion together.
Let this be a reminder to us, the communion, that God has freely and costly forgiven us of our sins. How can we not forgive others? Let this be a constant reminder that as we come to this table and have this bread and drink this cup, that we are reminded often of how much God has forgiven us and how little he has asked us to forgive one another. We can become Joseph's and stand strong in the Lord, and the world will recognize that strength, his strength. Because it takes his strength, it takes his mercy and his kindness in our heart to even forgive the simplest of sins, let alone someone who has really hurt us. So let's partake. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Your goodness to us extends even to our actions so that we would forgive others. Help us, Lord, to be people of forgiveness, people of kindness and compassion, people that are noticed for their love for one another that does not allow offenses to break our fellowship, but restores that fellowship because of your name's sake. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, Amen. See you back here next week, same time, same uh, virtuality, if that's even a word. Until then, continue to love on one another and to love this great God that has revealed himself through Christ. God bless everyone and take care. <laughs>